Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. On today's episode of the podcast, it is my great pleasure to welcome author and musician Matt Osman. Matt is the founding member of the British rock band Suede. In 2020, his first novel, The Ruins, was released, and this year it was followed by his hotly anticipated second book, The Ghost Theatre, which was chosen as a book of the year 2023 by The Observer, The Times, and The Evening Standard. It is a gorgeously evocative and rich story set in the grand houses and dirty streets of Elizabethan London. Matt, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello, Jack. Lovely to be here. Our pleasure. Reading The Ghost Theatre, Matt, I feel there's a great love for theatre and performance uh, for it, even when exploring the kind of the darker sides of that. Would you say that's fair to say? Was there a great, when you were writing this, were you thinking of kind of the power of theatre? Because that's one thing that really struck me from some of the scenes in this book. Totally. I mean, I'm always interested in in performance. You know, I've Mm. been a performer most of my adult life. And it's one of those things that you come to with, or for me, with no training whatsoever. And you learn to kind of negotiate this way of acting purely through trial and error. I've always been interested in the idea that we all have to pretend to be other people in our everyday life. We all have a a work persona and, you know, kind of like a holiday persona. We all have these things. But there are certain people for whom their identities are kind of, they're so blurred. You know, the great actors, they have to inhabit these roles. You know, they have to feel the feelings that it has to be true for them. And I'm endlessly fascinated by what that does to you. What happens when you pretend to be something else all of your life so you know in the book i mean you have you have actors but you also you have women pretending to be men to get a job you have people pretending to be more well-born than they are to get on and you know it's a i think a theme that, that runs through the book that we all perform and what are the what are the costs of that mm. and of course it's something i think people are endlessly fascinated with because you know we all in some way consume performance and people love talking about you know particularly let's say actors all i heard they really got lost in this role we love those stories of kind of backstage oh he or she they never left character Mm -hmm. um they you know they kept doing the accent we're kind of fascinated by the uh, this idea of becoming of of not just performing but becoming Yeah, you know, it's about transformation. And it's about transformation in an age when it was almost impossible to transform yourself. You Mm. know, uh, uh, the the social structure was really, was really stratified, Mm. you know, kind of with royalty and the landed gentry. You have this incredible, like, listing of kind of baronets and lords Mm. and all these things. It's very, very, you know, and you're born into those. But also right through the kind of working classes and stuff. I spent a lot of time looking at kind of what people actually wore in those times. And there's this fascinating Mm. thing that there were certain colours you couldn't wear if you were working class. You know, you couldn't wear purple unless you were a landowner. These very strange kind of delineations that that went on. So, you know, there were only two kinds of freedom for the working class people of the time. Mm. And there's the theatre, 
you know, when they suddenly could be kings. And then there's Saturnalia, which happens once a year when the servants rule the big houses and the owners have to um, be the servants for a day, which was a kind mm. of, is a kind of Tudor letting off of steam. You know, it's a safety mm. valve against rebellion. And part of the book is about what if you decided that you were going to take Saturnalia every day? You know what I mean? What, what if you decided one day it just isn't enough? Yes, that that single instance, yeah. you know, doesn't can kind of break its boundaries. The, and, the, the characters and in the book, they get a taste for it, you know. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it is, yeah, it is interesting to think of that, that this kind of inbuilt pressure valve, as, mm. as you say, you know, because that structure was so rigid, that there had to be some places where people could release all the kind of the tensions from the year because it must have been such a and you know it's obvious that you did a lot of research to write this because it is so evocative reading it people must have felt so constrained by that and there's a lovely scene where you know we meet queen elizabeth the first and there's even a sense that she feels that she feels Uh penned in by this structure that almost no one can escape Exactly. You know, I mean, she, she's a woman in what's still a hugely male world, mm. you know what I mean? There's there's a glass ceiling, even if you're right at mm. the top, you know, it's quite a strange feeling, I think. And talking about kind of like safety valve, one of the things I didn't really realise was quite how violent and riotous Elizabethan life was. Because we have this thing that history is, is written by the victors. So we see it as this kind of unbroken kind of steps of, of royalty. And, you know, we, we talk about it in terms of the people who ruled at the time. But the apprentices, you know, the majority of working class male youths were constantly rioting, constantly mm. setting London <laughs> on fire, constantly, you know, having huge pitched battles like football hooligans across the street. And there were instances where it came very close to, to being anarchy and those things Mm. i think get forgotten you know because we're almost always looking at the very top end of society and the gowns and the the masks and the and the pageantry you forget that this was a a society where there were heads on sticks outside london bridge just to remind you when you crossed you know what i mean the big kind of uh, competitor for going to see a shakespeare play was with bear baiting you know, the, this was your choice of an evening. Um, it was a, an incredibly violent and rebellious time that I think has almost been glossed over. Absolutely. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I feel people will, I don't know, in the world of kind of games, movies and things like that, people will talk as if our age, you know, people are kind of subjected to, or with 24-hour news, for instance, mm-hmm. kind of violence all the times. But in, in some ways, for many, it's a kind of virtual violence. It's either virtual in the game world or or it's on the news yes. and therefore it takes on a kind of a 2D quality. Whereas, yeah, you really get a sense that this was a time where violence was just every day. It was something, yep. you know, your boss could be beating you or kind of others in front of you you know, violence was part of kind of the landscape of the ev- everyday. Totally. And then you went home and consumed for for, for entertainment more violence. Mm. Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, a, a, a lot of Elizabethan plays are incredibly bloody. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? They would never pass any censor today, really. And then, as I say, you know, kind of like basically animal torture was was, was a huge, huge... You know, lions mm. fighting dogs and, you know, bears against wolves, all these kind of things. Yes, it was, um, you wonder if it's, uh, you know, to kind of get away from 
the violence being enacted on you that you know I, th- suddenly... I think i think it's entirely that everyone mm. is kind of hitting down you know it's 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 kind of like right who who is left to pick on it's just kind of the very lowest of the low and it's you know animals were were possess- they weren't pets at the time really they no. were possessions so they were they were the bottom of that and it's interesting because then the theater in that and you know particularly in the book then becomes because you know there's something quite sad to think about human nature kind of immediately like you know if you're oppressed then the only kind of release is to kind of well who's beneath me you know can i sort of punch down to them but it feels like the theater in this kind of then puts the question of like oh but what if that went the other way yes, you know what totally. what would happen if we actually turn that lens around towards you know your oppressor yeah and i think it's difficult to remember quite how modern this kind of theater was at the time mm. you know that the, the, the huge explosion that happened with kind of like shakespeare and and kit marlowe and ben johnson and, and all these people it's only kind of like 15 years old at this point mm. there's obviously been theater for, for years but a lot of it is quite it's very stylized it's kind of comedia dell'arte and pantomime and things like that and then suddenly you have this huge explosion of a very sophisticated storytelling. We you know, weaving in lots of different themes and different characters and all these things. But at the time it was it was truly modern and Londoners went absolutely mad for it. Like two thirds of Londoners went to the theatre. It was like Netflix arriving. Yeah. Or it was like the internet arriving. It was ultra modern. It was totally captivating. You know, the the Puritan side of London was constantly trying to close down the theatres because it, they thought it took away time from people who should be learning to shoot bows and arrows. But also, there's something anarchic about it and something rebellious about it. You know, kind of uh, yeah, men addressing as women, boys addressing as kings. There's a sense of possibility and magic to it mm. that people intrinsically knew was dangerous right from the start. Mm. Yes, it's almost, um, and I'm sure it was to the Puritans, sort of almost dangerously pagan, you know, the, oh, of course, the, the yeah. coming other things. And yes, the, you know, the gender bending, which certainly for the theatre at the time was incredibly commonplace and, oh, yeah. and the standard. I mean, yeah. you, had to be, you had to be male to appear on stage. It was, it was as simple mm. as that. Unless you were singing something, then you might get away with being a girl. But if you were acting, you know... It, you're a man or a boy. Therefore, you know, dressing up and it was all part of it. And I'm sure they, I'm sure the Puritans saw that and thought, we can't have this. Hence, you know, Cromwell. Yeah. And it's, and, yeah. I mean, it's, but it's no different from today. Yeah. I mean, mm. this is the obvious thing with any historical novel. You know, you look at drag shows being banned in the States mm. and it's not what's happening. It's what they represent. Mm. You know, Absolutely. it's it's yes. it's the it's the sense of kind of fluidity and 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 anarchy that that, mm. that that's scary. But rather, you know, the pantomime dames dress up as women all the time. No one's kind of worried by exactly. that. Exactly. And, um, you know, and, you know, with with something like drag shows, there's obviously a whole spectrum, you know, you can get the stuff that's obviously very, you know, geared towards like an, an adult audience, but also the stuff that's, at, you know, is practically just someone in a frock kind of, you know, singing along to a song that they really exactly, enjoy, which yeah, is quite, yeah. in, you know, which is quite, you know, it's, innocent it's and truly joyful. innocent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yet it's given this kind of, you know, when you hear these um, people speak out against it, you know, you would, uh, you know, you would think it it was a, a drama that had crawled straight from hell to you know, <laughs> torment the world. You exactly, know, it's, uh, yes. Yeah. 
we'll go back to the ghost theatre later, but looking at kind of your influences now and things like that, one thing that really struck me is the language in it. It's a really beautiful and, you know, I, uh, when I use the word evocative, it's, it's true. Your descriptions of kind of the time, the place, you know, they really do take you there. As well as as music, has language always been something that from a young age you've you've enjoyed and you've kind of sought kind of release in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I, I think one of the things about about growing up as a musician, you're very aware of kind of the power of, of words, you know, especially through song lyrics mm. and the sense that everything is doubled, you know, everything... Everything has meaning, but it has a sound to it as well, you know. And growing up in a band and, and listening to music, there's lots of lyricists I really like who I'm never quite sure what the song is about, mm-hmm. and I don't really care about that. You know what I mean? There's the kind of I, I guess people like Ian McCulloch of, of mm-hmm. Echo and the Bunnymen. You know, he writes things like The Killing Moon. I've absolutely no idea what it's about, but it, there's a poetry to it. Mm. that brings an emotion out. The reason for writing fiction is you're not just passing on information. It's not just a case of, I'm going to tell you a story of something that happened. You're trying to, you're trying to evoke emotion. And a lot of that is, is through the sound of the words and the way that they kind of flow. And the, you know, even silly things like the length of the sentence and, and, and just making things read properly so yeah it's always been really important to me and i read the first the the audiobook of my first book and knowing i was going to have to do that was a really helpful thing to me because i realized that if you read out loud and if you speak it out loud you catch really good things but also really bad things about the prose Mm. and and nowadays it's a bit boring but i do before I put something down as a, as a final draft, I read it aloud to myself. It takes like a week, and I read it aloud to myself. And you can just tell what's working and what's not working. And it's funny, isn't it, that because uh, we we get so used to um, you know, particularly being from the world of books as the written word, but there mm. definitely is always a relationship between that and the spoken word. And you know, many authors talk about you know they might sort of read it out loud to themselves. And particularly now, I feel there's a, a boom in kind of the interest in audiobooks as well. We now have people talking about, oh, I really, you know, I really love this book. Oh, but, you know, this audio recording, I prefer this. And storytelling is still in many ways, even in the world of books, a kind of a performance. And, and performance adds something to that. Totally. And, and every now and then, an audiobook will transform something. I've I'd listened to Lincoln and the Bardo, the mm. George Sanders mm. uh, book, which, uh, and I, I loved the book. I thought it was astounding. But the audiobook is something else entirely because there's m- multiple voices. And it's not a theatre piece, you know, it's not, no. it, it doesn't pretend that you're there. It's, it's a reading of it. But because you have a chorus in that book, the way it transforms it is something, it just makes it more rich, it deepens mm. it. So, yeah, I'm always aware of, of, of that side of it. And you can hear it in, you know, certain books as well. Because I remember I, I listened to the audiobook of um, The Crimson Petal and the White. Oh, what and a book. What, you know, what a book. And that has that, you know, famous sort of opening line where it's being directed at you, you know, come yeah. with me, I'll take you through London. And suddenly when you've got someone saying that in your, you know, ears, 
really yeah. does add something where there have been experiences I've had where I've listened to an audio book and I thought, well, I'm not sure about this book. But then when I've picked it up, it, you know, it does, you know, there are some yeah. books that kind of work in the cerebral kind of, it's just your, mm-hmm. you know, That's you actually. building the pictures, which is so interesting because it maybe feels like an area that, you know, as people, you know, listen to more audiobooks might, you know, well, I'm, I'm always interested in sound and, and when, mm. when I'm writing a scene, I'm always imagining what would you hear mm. at these times, you know, you know that if you can put in, you know, an evocation of, of what you might hear or what you might smell or something like that, mm. it just puts you in that place in mm. a way that just describing what you see never does, you know what I mean? Mm. I think it makes it feel... I have a problem with a lot of historical fiction that it mm. always feels that it's at a remove. And it's it's difficult, I think, to make the characters feel like you could meet them and talk to them mm. and, and be part of them. You know, it's something I've worked quite hard at trying to imagine that people don't change that much. Their situations change hugely. But I think, you know, we would recognise people of the Elizabethan time. We would be friends with certain people and not like other people. They're not just pawns to be moved around a board. They're personalities with with flaws and with, with kind of joys to them as well. What you were saying about historical fiction and that remove, do you think that partially comes from a kind of a mindset of the historian, which, you know, is, I think, in the ideal seen as this, um, you know, slightly sort of objective at a remove character, which, of course, isn't the truth. You know, people have, you know, different views of history. And is that why? Because, of course, we are in, you know, clearly a sort of a a fictionalised version of Elizabethan London here. Is that, as a writer for you, does that help you kind of get more in there because you're not worried about, you know, full historical accuracy and you can sort of get in there with the people? Yeah, totally. And it's what works for me. I'm not saying that, that all historical fiction should should be like this. Mm. But what I what I liked about setting it in in kind of Elizabethan times was, was more about the gaps in our knowledge than our actual knowledge, you know. I would find little, you know, little nuggets of stuff, you know, the Blackfriars boys, the the actors in the book are, are real, you know. It, mm. it totally happened. There was the Blackfriars Theatre. Evans owned it. The names that are used, apart from none such, are the names of the actual boys. They were kidnapped to appear on stage. There's a very famous court case where a kind of quite high-born man goes to court to get his son back from the Blackfriars. And we never know what ha- what happened because we don't have the verdict. Oh, wow. But because often they were being taken to perform a court and kind of royal masks, I don't think he had a, a leg to stand on. But what was interesting to me was that we had these characters, we had these people, but their story had never been told. We don't know mm. anything about them bar their names. So I had to imagine it. And all the way through the book, there, there's lots of stuff like this where it's sparked by something historical. Mm. You know, Evans did own the first glass house in London. I think it was probably a greenhouse. <laughs> rather than a kind of Venetian palace. But, but who knows, you know. Yes, yeah. So lots of it, was taking, you know, jumping off points from, from history, but then mm. not trying to be too slavish about it. It's it's fiction. Mm. It's, a, it's a story. Yes, I was... Um, the scene in the book where we sort of witness briefly one of these um, 
abductions you know i remember thinking oh you know sort of being shot by it and being oh goodness you know this poor you know mm -hmm. this poor boy and then i i read the the guardian interview and saying that you know part of the kind of uh, catalyst for this idea was a bbc documentary you know about the reality of this and i i, I accepted it in the book 100 but then to you know fully have it mm. confirmed that this was a real thing and i feel like why I feel like when we learn about these times at school, that would be, you know, a kind of a use, a, a kind of interesting tip. It would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Because mm. I mean, I think like most people, I'm always projecting myself back. Mm. I'm always thinking, how would I have dealt with these times? You know, I mean, one of the reasons I talk about actors in this book and messengers is I had a very ordinary upbringing. You know, I wouldn't have been royal. So mm. what would I have been doing? And you know, possibly on stage or or running errands, you know, basically, mm. basically a, <laughs> yeah. a, a paper round. <laughs> uh, I, that's a good question to ask because I think people are biased, you know, in the sense that they, you know, we love to imagine we would be at court and mm -hmm. we would be dressed in the fine clothes, but the uh -huh. reality is, we yep. would have short, quite grim lives. Yeah, cleaning mittens, probably. <laughs> yes, you know. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, and so it's, you know, it's fun to then explore those areas of, you know, who could uh, escape. Where, exactly, where yeah. could you find, you know, kind of a different life? And as you were saying, that kind of theatre was... Because it is that thing, I assume there would have been people like me who yearn for a more exciting life, a more, mm. a less kind of pre-planned life. You know, I, I don't think people change that much. No. So I know there must have been the equivalence of me in those times. There must have been the equivalence of the Sex Pistols in those times. There must have been the equivalence mm. of, you know, kind of like Salvador Dali. Mm. You know, th these instincts, they don't change. We have them. And it was, it's interesting to me to see, you know, how might that have happened? Mm. And, and would you say that kind of desire to kind of, you know, leave something maybe a bit more exciting, was that channeled into into Shay, who obviously, you know, she's from this actually very sort of idyllic, you know, the way, you know, depict Birdland, you know, at the, at the beginning, you know, feels, oh, you know, so beautiful. And I think particularly to contemporary readers, when we think of what's been lost in terms of, of nature and kind of the natural environment, oh, you know, this sounds lovely but she has this desire for the city the city sort of pulls her in did that come from quite a personal s s space would you say oh yeah totally I, I was obsessed with moving to london from okay. about the age of 12 you know okay. always you know i i mean I, I grew up not far away i grew up in Haywards heath which is about kind of 40 miles south mm, of london. okay but, but right. london was 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 the the promised land you know um mm. and still is in a sense you know i've lived here 35 years and I absolutely love it I think I I love the city in the way that only someone who wasn't born here can you know what I mean yes it yeah. still feels like um I still feel slightly that I shouldn't be allowed to be wandering around okay, you, know, you can wander around Westminster and you can wander through the inns of court and all these places it it still feels slightly transgressive to me that that I'm allowed to be here I'm I'm eternally grateful that i wasn't born here because i think then you just take it for granted in a way mm, mm. what's lovely about london is is no one's from here you know what i mean i mean i'm surrounded by people who call themselves londoners and i think i know like two people who were actually born in the city mm. but what's great about that is it means people chose the city they're not here by accident people come here 
because because of work or because of art or because of excitement you know it's it's it, it's a city that we're kind of constantly all of us are imagining every day and i think that's that there's something great about that yeah it is absolutely a kind of a both reality but an yeah, imagined it's a mass a mass hallucination yes yeah <laughs> one day we'll all wake up and it will just be a marshland again and a <laughs> and in terms of books yourselves you know uh both writing this but just for you as a person you know are there any titles whether from when you're a child or kind of more recently that kind of really stand out to you as books that have kind of loomed large in in your mind that have stayed with you well it's 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 funny because you mentioned beforehand about children's books and i was thinking to myself i don't really remember any of them you know um, mm. but then i was thinking i mean the first thing that i can really remember absolutely loving were the sherlock holmes stories i can remember finding my, my parents had a copy and it was the only kind of like cloth bound book we had we had lots of kind of like paperbacks of of kind of like you know quite trashy Jackie Collins kind of stuff and then there was this book and I assumed it was actually from Victorian times it probably wasn't it was probably from like 1950 or something (laughs) but because it was the only old book and I kind of absolutely devoured it and I thought at the time that it was mainly about the characters I mean they're incredible characters you know Mm. Sherlock Holmes is one of the great literary characters of all time and I think especially if you're quite bookish and I wasn't particularly sporty or anything Mm. um, to have a hero who just uses his mind Mm. and always wins is quite satisfying yes but I I look back on it now and I I wonder how much of it that I really loved was about London Mm. there's some of the great London books they're up there with with Dickens in the sense Mm. that what's fabulous about Holmes is is he goes everywhere you know what I mean he goes to opium dens and he goes to palaces he's almost entirely classless it's Mm. quite weird when you think about Victorian society he kind of sits in the middle of all of these things and he takes on cases that are interesting and as with kind of Shakespeare what's often really interesting about the books is not the big central plots or anything it's the detail of of the world that they move through you know i I found with with the ghost theater it was it was really useful to go to shakespeare plays Mm -hmm. not for the big stuff but just the kind of things they assumed about how men and women acted between themselves and and where you should live in London and things like all, all these li- little things that kind of told you what people actually thought. And the Holmes books, I, I reread them recently and I'd forgotten what a brilliant writer about London he was. You know, the characters, they're always on the move, they're always getting cabs here and there or walking around and it's always ac- accurate. You always know that it's not an intellectual exercise. You know that he's walked those streets mm. and he, he knows what it looks like and what it feels like. So, yeah, I mean, they're, they're late for a children's book. You know, that was, that was in my teens. But they were the first thing that I think that actually kind of captivated me. You know, that's always a, a question that when we ask, you know, I've had people turn around and say, oh, I didn't read until I was older. And actually you know, games or, or, or some other medium were kind of the, you know, my creative outlet. Because I think um, 
some authors have been sh- you know shy to say that because i think they feel they have to say oh you know i was three yeah, yeah. and i picked up uh war and peace and i loved it <laughs> um i've still got my notes in my crib um, yeah yes yeah and you know actually you know that's not uh, the case at all and e- even in the world of bookshops you know people are sort of shy to say oh actually i'm only really getting into reading now and you know i say that was the case for me i was very dyslexic as a kid you know i books were just a kind of a a sort of a jumble for me whereas now you know it's a huge um part of my life but it's yeah interesting uh, what you say about Holmes and and London as a character yeah itself and always when you talked about the movement that just made me think just of the three books that have been mentioned Sherlock Holmes um Crimson Petal and the White which of course is is very you know um very based in London and then your book as well is movement is a big part of it you know the characters are always moving somewhere they're always going to another place and London is a city of movement you know Shay moves across the rooftops that no one's staying still you can't stay still yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of vital to me. I I had a map open at all times when I was writing the book, making sure that it all made sense, that if she was, if she mm. was, if she was taking a, a message, this is the way she'd go, and looking at what was next to each other and, and, and how things were laid out. But it's interesting that you mentioned Crimson Petal and, and the White, because Michelle Faber is really important author for me mm. not just because of because of his books and the crimson petal and, and the white was definitely uh, for me it was a book that kind of looked under the carpet of, of mm. london it takes the victorian novel and and strips out all of the kind of sentimentality and you know i, I mean i love dickens but he can be very sen- sentimental mm. and quite pious and this isn't at all it's brutal you know yeah and that was really that was important to me to try and get the kind of the cruelty of london you know and 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 how rough it could be but he's also really important to me because i love authors who who play with genre and aren't trapped by by genre you know um, i i love people like david mitchell and sandra newman and ian banks even you know, who, who can move between these things and take what's best from them. I can remember reading The Scarlet Petal and the White and thinking, oh, right, this is the kind of author I'd like to be. I'd like to have written Under the Skin, which is one of my f- favourite books of all time, one of the most extraordinary, you know, takes every genre, you know, science fiction and crime and whatever, and mm. smashes it up, and then move to this completely different book. I mean, the... the 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 deepest deepest themes are the same. They're about it's about connection, mm. but to be able to kind of play with with genres like that and not be kind of constricted by the kind of books you write was was really important to me. You know, and even when when I was kind of looking for agents, the fact that the Victoria, my agent, had represented Sandra Newman, who'd written a, like a a doorstop post-apocalyptic fantasy book then a time traveling kind of elizabethan london to kind of about 20 years in the future book she's now rewritten 1984 from julia's perspective everything about that really excites me you know it's kind of i don't want to get bogged down in in Mm. formula and i like to kind of steal things from here there and everywhere absolutely and you know that's something to be treasured because that's quite 
you know rare in today's world we love you know we love a we love a category you know we love mm. to go oh this well, person does this and well i i think in publishing especially you know mm. it's kind of it's a real straight jacket i think and the way in which books are marketed you know kind of like every book has variations on kind of like five or six covers that tell you <laughs> you know what i mean if if there's a silhouetted yes, yeah, man yeah. walking through a kind of uh, neon lit alleyway then it's crime you know what yeah. i mean and it, it, there's something quite reductive about it i f- i find it quite hard you know mm. when i'm told okay this is historical fiction it just it just seems a bit odd to me it's just it's just fiction it happens to be set in that time yes and it's something we um i'm obviously very biased but you know it's something as a bookseller that you try and guide people through and say oh you know this book it's being sold as this but just so you yeah. know it, it has these shades in yeah. for instance with crimson petal and the white i've recommended it before and you know i've said to people who you know let's say i feel i might have to warn or just so you know it doesn't shy away from the central character you know her job what that means you know yeah. and, and and they've come back and loved it oh you know what else have um what else have they written and then it's funny it, it's great to turn around and say well uh, there's this alien in glasgow and <laughs> you know and they just sort of look at you because we don't expect that we kind yeah. of we're we expect to kind of oh they've basically written a very similar thing uh, which, you know, which is fine i think again, yeah i mean going back to homes i mean when I was growing up, I loved series of, of books that did the same thing. And that, the home stories, the shape of them is exactly yeah. the same every time. And I found that really quite comforting. Mm. You know, I just, as I get older, more and more, I want to be kind of surprised by a book. Mm. You know, it's strange. More and more, whenever anyone says to me, oh, it starts off as one thing and it ends up as somewhere else, I'm kind of like, oh, right. That sounds good to me. I, yeah. I don't want to know exactly where it's going. Yes. You know, I want to be taken somewhere that I didn't expect to go. We were, I, was, I was talking last night with someone about Fingersmith, talking of historical fiction. Oh, yes, yeah. And just talking about the the twist in the middle of it. And just saying it, it's one of the rare times that I've been reading a book and I've had to put physically put it down and just stop and think about what's happened. And uh, I love that. What it does to you the shock it gives you is, is incredible it's like a jump scare in a mm. horror movie but for you know with a bit of depth to it yes it's yeah a, a kind of there's something very exciting about having kind of the carpet pulled yes, from beneath yeah, totally. your feet yes. but in that safe environment and again that's something that you know fiction shares with you know theater and performance because you can be at you know a performance of titus andronicus and seeing all sorts of kind of yes horrors unfold and that can be very shocking. And it's a different feeling to the kind of, you know, a book becoming something else. But I think it's in the same category of kind of exhilarating, but ultimately safe as well. Because, you, kn- yeah. you know, I it's mean, not you, real. It's- you're testing yourself in books, aren't you? Mm. If you, you know, relate to the characters, what you're doing is saying, how would I have handled this? You know, would I have survived? You know, would I have got on? Would I have found love? You know, all these kind of massive, massive questions. And it's almost like we, we, we only have one life to lead. And, mm. you know, books can be a kind of like, okay, if I'd been this kind of person, what would have happened? If I'd moved to this place, 
what would have happened you know they can be this kind of like petri dishes of of, of other people you could have been you know the mm. ruins was 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 very much that you know it was about it was about a you know a rock star and then a kind of shut-in brother who who was kind of like very emotionally kind of stunted and socially stunted and then him having to impersonate his brother and being thrown into this other world and it's very much okay now i'm this kind of person can i handle it can i become mm. can i change can i be someone else you know I, and i'm i'm always interested in those stories of people being kind of thrown into the deep end and and whether the change is good for them or whether they manage it at all mm. yeah i suppose it's almost the it is dreaming isn't it you know they uh, yes, i think you yeah. know they say dreams are kind of you know we we test ourselves in situations so we're prepared yeah. for whatever life fiction storytelling you know whatever it's part of that poking yourself yeah, and going testing yourself against the yeah, world could you could you do this and do you find that as a writer as well when you're writing do you almost want to be surprised by where the story goes or, or are you a plotter do you kind of plot out this is the story and that's what i'll write i really wish i was because i spend I waste a load of time. And every time I sit down to write, I say, okay, this time what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to plot it all out, you know, and I won't waste a word. And then I just, I just digress. But I'm learning that, that that's all I can do, really. You know, I mean, when I started to write The Ghost Theatre, it was about none such. It was about this male child actor. And it was very much much more psychological and about performance and, and, and about what it does to you. And then I needed a, another viewpoint to kind of see the theatre for the first time and, and started writing Shay. And I honestly, none of her or what happens to her was planned at all. The Birdland or anything like that. I just wrote and I wrote and wrote and wrote and it just, it just came out. It's, it's very rare. I mean, normally I'm a bit more planned than that. But yeah, no, it's... I absolutely love that. You know, I write... It's difficult to say it without sounding pretentious, but mm. I kind of write to find out what I think about certain things. Mm. You know, I'm very aware that lots of my kind of beliefs and stuff are just things that have been knocking around in my head since childhood, and I've never really examined them. And then when I start writing, I have to actually think about what I think. You know, I have to think about how people will behave and what's the right thing for them to do and the wrong thing for them to do. And it's often very counterintuitive, you know. They often do what I wouldn't do. But I do love that, you know. I love the pleasure of... I still find at the end of the day, sometimes I'll look back at what I've written and I'll be like, well, where the hell did that come from? I'm almost almost reading it as, as I'm writing it. But part of that, I think, comes from being a musician. Mm. For so long, I've learned to trust my instincts. You know, I've learned to... You can jam as a musician. You can play around and something will come from it. And I've, I've learned that that works. I think often, you know, people who come to fiction for the first time, if, if they haven't, you don't have an artistic background, they can feel quite silly. You know what I mean? You're just making stuff up. Yes. And it's only because I've spent my life doing those little things and them turning mm. into something that is very meaningful for me and, and, for, and for lots of other people, that I know that it can be a silly little thing and hugely important at the same time. You do, yeah, you get people who are only non-fiction readers because non-fiction's real, 
and that's good. But you do suspect that they're, you know, it's kind of still scratching the same part of the brain of, you know, re- you know, even reading. It's it's other lives. It's it's all voyeurism, yep. isn't it? Yes. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's you know, how do other people live? You know, yep. what do they do? What do they think? It's all dress up. And it's interesting you said that about music because I, I was going to ask because it, it feels to me, and I say that as someone, you know, to my own shame, I've never been a musical person, but it does seem to me that both kind of fiction and writing and kind of music, it's a mixture of craft, skill, kind of patience, but also a little bit of kind of alchemy as well, that there's always an element of, oh, well, I didn't know where that, you know, that just came and it was there and I knew it was right. Yeah, I mean, and that's the the absolute joy of it. You know, I'm not a kind of, I don't believe in anything supernatural. Mm. And it's been quite hard talking to a few people about the book. You know, I don't believe in soothsaying. <laughs> I don't believe in tarot cards. <laughs> I, I don't believe that there is this other realm. But I've seen magic happen in, in music and in writing. Mm. You know, for me, those are, they're spells. Mm. You know what I mean? You say these words in a certain order and you can make people think other things. You know, books have, have sent people off to war. You know, books have made people do terrible, terrible things and incredible things. And that sense, it, and it is alchemy, you know what I mean? This, this huge power that comes from virtually enough, from the lead of words, you know, comes the gold of, of kind of emotion. And it's, it's, I always think of it that way. And I think it's what made it easier for me to write. You know what I mean? I, I think also lots of people give up halfway through writing a novel or even two thirds of the way through or a quarter of the way through because it's not right and it doesn't feel like it's right and I think the experience of being in a band where there's always a point when we're making an album where we're just like oh well this is just not right you know what I mean we went into the studio too early or you know it just doesn't happen and it's just the fact that we've always ploughed on and we've always got there in the end that kind of gave me the the hope when I was writing and got to that point of being two thirds of the way through and like, no one's ever going to want to read this. Yeah. There's just a little part of you that just goes, just keep going. You know what I mean? What's, what's the worst that could happen? You know, it's always good to be writing. And then just, there's these moments when it just, things click into place and you're suddenly like, all right, this is, this is something. It, it's interesting talking to a lot of authors. You are struck by a sense that for a long time, it can be rummaging through bits over here and sort of holding them up to the light and going you know how's this how's that and then actually it's only really you know quite surprisingly close to the end that suddenly those sort of form into a shape and they go oh okay here we go i'm writing something at the moment i've been really struggling with it and i just found myself like reading a lot of things and trying to get into the time and place and all these kind of things and a friend of mine said yeah there's writing time and and there's grazing time and she said, that's what all you're doing now is grazing. You know, you're taking a bit from here and a bit from here and a bit from here. And, you know, some of it will be good and some of it won't. But you need that kind of weight of ideas and characters and, and, and kind of places before you can kind of like sit down and actually work. So that was really good for me because the Ghost Theatre, I started while I was finishing The Ruins so for like kind of like five, six years, I've had a book on the go that I've known exactly where it's going. So to, to sit down and actually say, all right, I don't know what I'm doing. 
at the moment, but I'll just have to live with that. And we'll see. We'll have to keep a, an eye out for mm. yeah what that may coalesce to. And for though, because I'm aware that, you know, for those listening to the podcast that, you know, we, we've alluded to the plot of the ghost theatre. But if you for a moment wouldn't mind sort of taking on the role of bookseller and sort of, you know, just if you were introducing this book to someone, I'm aware to do to an author, it's quite a cruel thing to do to get them to, uh, you know, yeah, not sell you, their book. I'm not asking you to sell you, it, but you want to mention all of your babies. That's the thing. Yes. You know? yeah. gonna, <laughs> I know I'm going to leave someone out. Yeah. It's, it's the story of two child actors in Elizabethan times, one of whom is a kind of uh, dark star of the theatre, quite arrogant, um, incredibly talented. And the other one is a bird-worshipping messenger girl from just outside of London. And they meet and fall in love. But what they decide to do is to create a new kind of theatre, kind of guerrilla theatre, that's for the streets. There isn't stories of kings and gods, it's ordinary stories. And in doing that, they start putting on these plays throughout London in kind of like hidden corners. And they get this huge following of people who find it this incredibly rebellious and quite, um, you know, it, it lights the powder keg of, of rebellion. And it's just the story of how far they push these performances, how far they push their relationship and what gets broken in the process. With a cast of characters that includes kind of Queen Elizabeth I and roving bands of people cutting down the enclosures in the north and Sackerson from the Shakespeare plays who's a performing bear and Dr John Dee and all these kind of things. It's, um, it's, it's kind of part adventure, part historical fiction, part love story, part alternate history. And would you mind reading a segment for us, for those, for those listening? I will read a segment for you, yeah. This is from quite early on in the book when Shay, the messenger girl, has gone to the theatre for the first time and has been roped in to be a prompt. And this is the first time she sees the other character act none such. Conversations were snuffed out with the candles and there was a weight to the darkness then, like the room had filled with oil. A wedge of scenery was wheeled onto stage before eyes got used to the dark. There was a last delicious moment of calm before Alouette lit the lamp in front of them. There it was. The prow of a ship, cresting and burrowing into waves. Aquamarine silk undulated across the floor. It was at once profoundly unrealistic and utterly beguiling. Alouette worked bellows, laid sideways with its spout, angled towards the bow, and she sent up a glimmering spray of water. Shay caught the smell of deep sea with no land in sight. The ship curtsied to meet the waves, and when it rose again, none such was on deck with his hands on his hips. He was Cleopatra. Bird-eyed and horse-maned, black silk that captured ripples of sea light and gold at his ankles and wrists. Gold that was too plain for jewellery, but too rich for shackles. He turned a degree so that the light split his face in two. His first line, according to Shea's script, was... The waves know my fate, and Caesar's too. But he continued to stare out in silence. There was a reverie to it, the creak of wood and the smell of salt, the candlelight and hushed breaths. Shay tugged at Alouette's hem. Should I? But Alouette shook her head. Our hearts are ships. He didn't say it the way she was used to hearing players talk. 
Rather, he threw the line to the front row of the audience, quietly enough that they had to lean in a little closer. Our hearts are ships, he said again. And when life's weather is fair, we tell ourselves that we are our heart's captains. It is us who steer the course. We set sail for new lands. We explore. He flung his arms wide and turned so that he was almost entirely in darkness. There was the tiniest glint of light from his eyes. Alouette dimmed the lantern until he was little more than a voice and a gleam of gold. But that's an illusion. When true storms come, they pluck the ships of our heart up and toss them this way and that. We are no captains. Instead, we hang on for dear life, clinging to the mask as the winds rage around us. He blew out his cheeks against the squall of the spray. His hair was damp and flustered. Our hearts are ships, he said, louder now as Alouette worked the bellows. And tonight the tempest is here. The storm is upon us and my heart is lost on a killing sea. Shay looked in vain at her script. Not a word of the speech appeared there. None such stood taller, extended a hand and blew. Tiny paper boats, as small as thistledown, streamed from his palm, and all over the theatre hands reached up into the light, and then, in one moment, Alouette killed the lanterns, and a curtain fell. Well, I suppose that was scene one, she said. Matt, thank you so much for that lovely reading. Thank you. That's um, unfortunately brought us to the end of our conversation, but I want to thank you so much for, for joining us on our podcast here. Oh, th thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, to let everyone know that um, the Ghost Theatre, it's out now in hardback. It's available at Mostly Books in our store and online or from wherever you decide to purchase your books from. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thank you very much. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.